friends to another episode of your favorite spooky history podcast strange origins i haven't introduced myself in a while but if we haven't met my name is paige and i'm the host writer researcher editor and all the above of this little podcast well the last few episodes have been more monster focused I thought it was high time this week that I teach you guys about something a little more mystical. While originally I wanted to research the urban myth of Bloody Mary, I decided instead to focus on mirrors in general and research the act of scrying. One of the first times I remember learning about scrying as a part of the art of divination was in the film Cold Mountain. If you haven't seen it or read the book, Cold Mountain is a story about a man and a woman who meet at the beginning of the American Civil War, and in my opinion, is one of the more beautiful and heart-wrenching love stories I've ever read. They begin a courtship when he is forced to join in on the war, and she is, for a few years, left to fend for herself without any knowledge of how to do so. In one part of the film, her neighbor suggests using the still water in their well along with a hand mirror to attempt to see the future. Leaning backward, she sees a shadowy scene play out, which you find out in the end accurately predicts the future. This type of practice, called scrying, is just one of the methods used to divine knowledge of one's future or hear messages from the other side. I later learned that this particular performance was one of many versions of scrying. At its base, scrying is the act of looking into a reflective surface, whether that is water or a mirror, or even polished brass, in order to see objects or movement. You can then interpret what you believe you see, whether it be literal or symbolic, as a way to move forward with future actions. Some even say that scrying is a way that you can peer into other universes, or even contact otherworldly entities. Some believe that scrying with the use of a mirror is one of the better ways to protect yourself from danger. Since mirrors are reflective on both sides, whatever is on the other side can't get through the portal. It's also said that one of the better ways to perform this ritual is by using a mirror that has been specifically designated as a scrying mirror. Since bad energy can have an effect on your reading, it's best that you dedicate a certain amount of energy to clearing all negative feelings and making sure that you are at your best mentally before you attempt to see anything. Divination has been surprisingly common in a lot of different eras of history. Famously, the ancient Egyptians would use methods such as water or oil scrying, and even interpreted their dreams as having a higher meaning. One of the reasons mirrors were so important in ancient Egypt 
is thought to be because mirrors were a symbol of the goddess Hathor. Mirrors at the time were simply just round fixtures that were covered in a reflective gold or bronze surface that was attached to a decorative handle. They actually look surprisingly a lot like modern hand mirrors. Because of the coloring of the mirrors, they were thought to symbolize the sun. One Egyptian legend linked Hathor to mirrors by stating that she carried around a shield that could, quote, reflect back all things in their true light. According to myth, she used that shield to create the first scrying mirror. New information about the history of scrying has popped up as recently as 1958, when a classical Greek archaeologist claimed to have discovered an interesting scrying center that was near the Dodona Oracle. This temple is thought to have been used to communicate with the Greek god Zeus. The way that you would enter this temple was by sitting in complete darkness, awaiting your turn, and then making your way through an extensive maze to a hallway where what they called gazing would happen. Using a bronze cauldron, people would stand around gazing into it in order to see visions. To understand what exactly scrying is, I first went back to the origin of the word. One of the first words to describe this type of ritual was either called catoptromancy or anoptromancy, which makes sense as anoptro or optic, meaning eye, translates to mean looking into a mirror, essentially. In the 2nd century AD, a man named Posanius was known for his work as a Greek geographer. His book, Descriptions of Greece, would later serve as an important piece of literature that would help historians to be able to make connections between what we read in classic literature and what we see today in Greek archaeology. Growing up under Roman rule, Pausanias was very passionate about his Greek heritage and wanted to record as much of it as possible. In his writing, he described one such way that scrying was popular in ancient Greece. He wrote that, quote, before the temple of Ceres at Patras, there was a fountain separated from the temple by a wall, and there was an oracle, very truthful, not for all events, but for the sick only. The sick person let down a mirror, suspended by a thread till its base touched the surface of the water, having first prayed to the goddess and offered incense. Then, looking into the mirror, he saw the presage of death or recovery, according as the face appeared fresh and healthy, or of a ghastly aspect. The word scry didn't pop up until later in Old English as the word descry, which means to make out dimly or to reveal. About 800 years after Pausanias wrote of his experiences, a Persian epic poem was written that is today considered to be one of the longest in existence. Like a lot of poems or epics, the Shanume, or Book of Kings in English, was a half-literal, half-mythical retelling of Iran's history. One of the reasons it's considered to be one of the longest poems ever created by one person is that it spans the period from creation all the way to the Muslim conquest in the 7th century. What's important about this poem in the context of this episode is that in the Shanume, 
there is the description of an item called the Cup of Jamshid. This cup was reported to have been used by Persian kings. If they filled it with an elixir of immortality, they could go about, quote, observing all the seven layers of the universe. In other stories, such as the heroic legend of Arslan, and even the English translation of the Shanume, this cup was referred to as a crystal ball or crystal globe. This may be where the concept of a round ball of glass came from, and in turn, the practice of crystal ball gazing. Something I didn't know about crystalmancy, or sphiromancy, if you want to be even more technical about it, is that the size of the crystal ball is actually just a preference. A lot of people prefer smaller crystals that you can hold in your hand, while the ones we see in movies are the larger version that is often depicted balancing in the middle of a round table. In reality, those types of crystals would have been far too large and far too expensive for the average fortune teller. Scrying became pretty popular by the 5th century, but as soon as the Christian church of medieval times took over power, it was condemned as satanic and outlawed. Nostradamus's history of professed psychic ability is famous nowadays, mostly due to his writing on the subject, which included a book of 942 poems that he said would predict the future. Michael Nostradam, which was his birth name, was a French astrologer and physician whose work and personal life were severely affected by the plague. He was forced to leave the University of Avignon after just a year due to an outbreak of the plague. After marrying and starting a family, the plague also took his wife and two children's lives. Nostradamus eventually remarried and had six children with his new wife, though. He was famously employed by Catherine de' Medici, the Queen of France at the time, and the mother-in-law of Mary, Queen of Scots. There is a lot about Nostradamus, about his life and his work, that is hard to prove. Like a lot of magicians from then and now, his motivations were probably primarily monetary. But it is said that one of his preferred methods of scrying was with a small bowl of water. By looking into the still water, he reported seeing images that predicted the future, or so he said. This is similar to the earliest reference of scrying that there is in history, which comes from ancient Babylonia, around 1000 BC. The people who attempted it used the technique of putting water, oil, or sometimes flour into a bowl, and watching how the different materials reacted to each other. Another famous scryer who had power over the royalty of the time was Dr. John Dee. In fact, he was even referred to as, quote, the last royal magician. Born in London in 1527, Dee became a sort of jack-of-all-trades. He was the court astrologer for Queen Elizabeth I, though he spent a lot of time performing alchemy, divination, and astrology. He once was arrested for the crime of calculating, or in other words, casting an astrology chart. The two women whose charts he read were the then Princess Elizabeth and Queen Mary, the later of whom was tried for treason for the act. 
He would work for Elizabeth before leaving her court in the 1580s, stating that one of his reasons for leaving was his need to know more than what could be taught to him through the normal means of learning. He turned to supernatural methods, and this is where he became interested in contacting spirits through the use of scrying. After becoming acquainted with a man named Edward Kelly, who reported being able to do a great number of mystical things, including seeing spirits or angels in what he called a showstone. Over the course of seven years, the two were said to have devoted a lot of time to what they referred to as spiritual conferences. Dee hoped for a few different things over the course of those seven years. Firstly, he wished that, quote, alchemy and angelic knowledge would heal the rift of Christendom. This makes sense as a lot of blood had been spilled due to the many different factions of Christianity warring with one another. This had been going on for about 500 years since 1054, and the close relationship between church and politics had made it hard to live peacefully, to say the least. The other big thing that Dee wanted to do was to employ the angels for their help in England's discovery of new lands. Both of those desires, surprisingly, would eventually be somewhat fulfilled with the discovery of North America and the succession of the U.S. government, which strived for a separation between religion and politics. Near the end of their relationship, Kelly seemed much more intrigued by alchemy, while Dee was much more interested in making contact with angels through scrying. Since Dee needed Kelly to serve as a medium between him and the angels, it said that there was a lot of tension between the two, as Dee would force them to perform long sessions on a daily basis. It's thought that the last nail in the coffin was Kelly stating to Dee that he had been told by one of the angels that they were to share everything they had with each other, which coincidentally included their wives, who had been traveling with them through Europe. This was, in all likelihood, a last-ditch effort to get Dee to stop forcing the daily scrying sessions and allow for some separation. Or maybe Kelly really did want Dee to share his wife with him. Who knows? Unfortunately for Dee, upon his return home, it said that his large library, which was among the biggest in England, was vandalized, and Elizabeth's successor, James I, kicked him out of court. Something that Dr. John Dee was famous for, and which lasted beyond him, was his knowledge of Kabbalism and Hermeticism. Both of these terms pretty much just mean a knowledge of mysticism or magic that only a few people know about or are privileged enough to learn about. While Kabbalism usually relates to Jewish mysticism, Hermeticism is a little more complicated and seems to be a mixture of ancient Greek and Egyptian philosophy and beliefs in gods from both time periods. A group I've come across pretty frequently in the past few years of research for this podcast is one that goes by the name of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. This group, which began in 1888, focused its energies on spiritual development through mainly rituals. Once you completed one level of ritual studies, you were then allowed to progress to the next level. 
the ritual I want to focus on in this episode was that of scrying. Members said that scrying could be done individually or more interestingly as a group. Hermetic scrying, according to a book written about the women of the group, focused on three different levels. The first level included using a reflective surface such as a mirror in order to simply see things that were not in this physical plane and that weren't bound by the concepts of time or space. The second stage, which you might recognize from a previous episode of mine, was astral projection. This form of scrying emphasized being inside the vision and being able to interact with things as they saw them. This level included leaving one's body and then afterward returning. The third stage, which was called rising in the plains, is a little harder to explain. According to writings by the female members of the Golden Dawn group, who were, interestingly enough, the ones who preferred scrying over their male counterparts, scrying was a way to focus on the divine. They did this by, quote, traveling up the paths between the Sephiroth on the Tree of Life, end quote. In my opinion, this wording, like a lot of wording used by similar cult-like groups at this time, were intentionally vague, convoluted, and required an understanding of random history in obscure words that served pretty much only to ostracize people who were outside of the group. I've talked about different forms of ceremonial magic in a lot of my previous episodes. You might remember my first Halloween episode, where I talked about how unmarried girls would skin an apple in one piece and then proceed to throw it over their shoulder to divine the initials of their future husband. Another ritual involved hazelnuts that they would throw into the fire. But one of the spookier rituals, in my opinion, was the one that involved mirrors. Young women were told, especially on Halloween, to stand at the top of a flight of stairs in the dark with a candle and to gaze into a mirror. If you were to see the face of a man, you could expect that he would someday be your husband. If you saw a skull, it meant that you were likely to die before marrying. I wouldn't put too much stock into this exact ritual, as there were about a dozen different ways to divine the details of your future husband. One included eating some salty herring at night, and waiting to see who would give you a glass of water in your dream to help quench your thirst. Another involved pulling cabbage from the ground and looking for clues in the dirt as to what the name of your future spouse would be. One ritual that I think we should bring back, instead of the tradition of throwing a bridal bouquet at the end of the wedding, is similar in ritual but much tastier. In Ireland, you could make colcannon, which is a dish made of mashed potatoes, onions, and kale, in order to hide a ring inside of it. The person that finds it, if they don't accidentally swallow it, is supposed to be married within the year. Today, there are quite a few explanations as to why scrying might be more psychological than metaphysical. Mainly, it's explained that looking into a mirror in a dimly lit room can easily cause one to hallucinate. If you've ever stared into a mirror in the dark for too long, it's not hard to see slight distortions such as melting. While it's currently unexplained how our brains can so severely misinterpret what it is seeing in the dark, 
It's referred to as the disassociative identity effect, or strange face illusion. Another use of scrying, called psychomantium, was a word created by Raymond Moody, who is most famous for his coining of the term near-death experience. Psychomantium, which essentially is just setting yourself up in a dimly lit room with a sitting area and a mirror positioned towards blank darkness, was a way for people to resolve their grief. A simpler version of the Ouija board, Moody compared the action to that of the Necromantian, which was essentially just the oracle of the dead in ancient Greece. That particular temple was dedicated to the underworld and its gods, Hades and Persephone. People would visit the Necromantian if they wanted to communicate with their dead ancestors. According to Moody, this tool was helpful in allowing people to grieve those they had lost. He even went so far as to create his own psychomantium in Alabama, which he coincidentally called the Dr. John D. Theater of the Mind. Something that I kept wondering while researching for this episode was whether or not there was any reality to what people were seeing when they performed the act of scrying. Like a lot of actions in the realm of mesmerism and mysticism, the brain likely just wants to fill a gap between what it's not seeing and what it wants to see. In a study of brain function, researchers have found that our brains love to perceive meaningful connections between things. This includes our brain's ability to see visuals of things that aren't what we are really seeing. Pareidolia is something everyone experiences and is why you can see the man in the moon or the smiling face of Jesus on a piece of toast. A quote that I found fascinating came from Michael Shermer, who coined the phrase patternicity and defined it as a quote, tendency to find meaningful patterns in meaningless noise. What I found so interesting about these types of psychological readings was that whether it's actually the other side attempting to gift us with knowledge of the future, or if it's simply just our brains creating these images for us, it leads to some kind of therapeutic resolution either way. And in fact, some authors who have written about this type of activity state that supernatural insight and subconscious realizations aren't really mutually incompatible. In fact, a great example of this is the fact that every civilization that developed in pre-Columbian Mexico, including the Olmecs and Aztecs, were known for practicing several forms of divination. Along with scrying through the use of every type of reflective surface, hallucinogens were a part of divining what path one should take in life. While this form of insight is activated through altered brain chemistry, Divination through hallucinogenics was believed to be spiritual, linking the scientific and religious aspects of divination, and therefore joining psychology and spirituality as two sides of the same coin. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Strange Origins, my friends. Keep an eye out for my next episode, which, hurrah, will be my 50th episode. Stay safe out there, everyone. Remember to be the good in the world, and don't forget to keep it strange. I'll see you on the other side of the scrying mirror.